Delighted that you're here and I hope you've got your Bible and encourage you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 2. We'll be spending our time in that chapter this evening. Romans chapter 2, a very familiar text to us all. And to introduce the idea of Romans chapter 2, let's consider that Romans chapters 1 through 3 as we often make the point, have to do with the need for salvation. Paul establishes the fact that all mankind need the justification by faith, which is the subject of the book. And I'm not interested so much tonight in the subject of the book as I am this introduction in chapters 1 to 3. And so in chapter 1, he makes the point that the Gentiles are in sin. That is, the Gentiles need salvation because they are in sin and they're separated from their God. He enumerates a number of things that they have done. The Gentiles are in sin. Chapter 2, he turns and talks about the Jews. That the Jews are in sin, and they also are in the same circumstance. They need salvation, justification by faith, just like the Gentiles. Chapter 3 pulls those two chapters together, and I call chapter 3 a funnel chapter because it funnels those two chapters together. By saying that all are under sin, verse 9 and in verse 23. We have before concluded that all are under sin. Verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I want us to focus now on the Jews in chapter 2. That's our focal point. Tonight we're not so much concerned about the Gentiles. We're not concerned about the fact that all, but I want to focus on the Jews in chapter 2. Because that's what chapter 2 is, is all about. Now the Jews are those who committed the same sins as were the Gentiles committing. Notice at verse 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. We'll say more about the same things in a moment. They were doing the same things. They were committing the same sins as the Gentiles were. But furthermore, they seem to not see any danger therein. That is, they are doing the same thing, that they're pointing a finger to the Gentiles and telling them they're wrong in doing, but they don't seem to see any danger in that. And there's some reasons why they might not have seen a danger in that, but they continue on practicing the same thing. And furthermore, they thought seemingly that they would escape since they were Abraham's seed. In other words, because we're Jews, we're descendants of Abraham, we are the people of God, we're the chosen people. The Gentiles are not, but we are, and therefore we are going to escape the judgment somehow. So that was the concept of the Jews. We'll say more about that concept in a moment. They're doing the very same thing. They don't seem to see any danger, and they seem to think we're going to escape because we're Jews, because we're Abraham's seed. Now what Romans 2 does is point to the Jews and say, you're doing the same things. You have the same problem and the same need as the Gentiles. You have the same need as the Gentiles because you're doing the very same thing. You're just as lost as they are. So chapter 2 focuses on the righteous judgment of God. Let's talk about the righteous judgment of God tonight. Look at verse 5 with me. Now, the, the whole chapter alludes to the judgment and uses the word judgment several times. But the phrase, the righteous judgment of God, is found in verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
Well, there's a number of things that we might label as judgment, but there is a judgment that is of God. But this is the righteous judgment of God. That doesn't mean that there is a judgment of God that's not righteous, but when God judge, judges, in the day of judgment, it's going to be the righteous judgment of God. Three things we want to see in this context. Let's talk about their attitude toward the judgment of God, number one. And secondly, the facts that are found about it. And then thirdly, the results of it. We're not going to look at the whole chapter tonight. We're not going to look at verses 17 through the end of the chapter. We're going to focus primarily on chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. Now, we'll make some uh, reference to other verses in the context, but our focal point is in verses 1 to 16. What is the righteous judgment of God? Let's look at their attitude toward it, that is the Jews, some facts about it, and the results of that judgment. What happens as a result of that? Let's start with their attitude toward it. What was the Jews' attitude that we just described a moment ago about the judgment? What did they think about the judgment that made a problem for them when it came to the judgment of God? So let's talk about the attitude that was wrong, verses 1 to 5. Here was the attitude they had that was wrong. That is, their concept and their thought process with reference to the judgment was the wrong attitude. Perhaps it's the same attitude some have in our present day. I want us to notice that they were doing the same kinds of things, is what I want us to notice. And look at verse, verse 1, that as we've already noted, that you who condemn the other, you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. All right, they're doing the very same kind of thing. Look at verse 3. And what do you think, O man, who judge those who practice such things and doing the same, that you'll escape the judgment of God? So you're doing the same things. Now there's two senses in which they were doing the same thing. Let's drop down a little bit later out of the context that we're focusing on. But notice at verse 21. You who teach, another do you not also teach yourself. You preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? In other words, they were doing the same thing in the sense the Gentiles were stealing and they were stealing. What's the difference in a Jew or a Gentile stealing? There's not a difference. Well, let's go a little bit further. Look at verse 21 or verse 22. You commit adultery. Do you, uh, uh, you say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? That is, they point their finger at the Gentiles and say, your adultery and your fornication is sinful. But yet the Jews were doing much of the same thing. What's the difference in adultery of a Jew and adultery of a Gentile? There's not any difference in that. But there's another sense in which they were doing the same thing. They may not be doing the identical sins always, but sometimes they're doing something that's just as bad or equally as bad. And let's notice that at verse 21 or verse 22. You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? That is, you point to the finger to the Gentiles and say, you should not be bowing to idols, but you're over here robbing temples or committing sacrilege, and consequently you're doing something just as bad and just as equally as wrong as were the Gentiles. And so they were doing the same thing. Maybe not always identical. For example, someone might be stealing from taking a gun and robbing a bank. And someone else may think, I would never do that. But they may be embezzling. What's the difference? There's not any difference in one sin and in the other sin. Now, why would they do that? What was their attitude toward that? Well, here's the first I want you to notice. And that is they thought that our situation is different. Look at verse 3. He said at verse 3, what do you think... Uh, but uh, do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same? In other words, what's going through your thinking process? That you will escape the judgment of God? Apparently the Jews thought because they were Jews, they would escape the judgment of God. 
We see that in numerous passages. We'll come to Romans 9 a little bit later. You see it in John chapter 8 as well. But they thought because we're Jews, God's going to somehow punch our ticket toward heaven. But our situation is different, you see, than the Gentile. When they commit that sin, that's one thing, but our situation is different. You see, we're Jews. We're God's people. And I said we'd come to Romans 9, so let's go over to Romans 9 and look at verse 7. This in the same book, same context. Look at verse 9. Nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. He's refuting the idea that if you're of the seed of Abraham, that automatically makes you a child of God. He said they are not all children because of the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac you are your seed because. Not everyone who was of the seed of Abraham was a child, is to be considered a child of God. And so the, the concept is that we're, we're different because perhaps we're Jews. Some may think in our own present day, well, you know, I, I do far more good than I do bad. My situation is different. What, what I was doing probably wasn't right, but my good far outweighs the bad, and so consequently I'm going to escape the judgment of God. My situation is different. Or maybe they're thinking this, I come from a family of godly people. Have you ever talked to someone who says, you know, my dad and mom were Christians and my grandparents were Christians and my great-grandparents were Christians. You see, my lineage is all godly people as if I somehow built up that godliness and I've inherited all of that and therefore I'm kind of the exception to the rule. And so you see, my situation may be just a little bit different. That uh, it's not, I'm not sure that it was wrong in my case. I, I know normally it would be wrong to do this, but in my circumstance, which is different from everyone else, it may be all right for me to practice that or do that or not practice whatever the command may be. My situation is different. That was their attitude. Here's a second attitude. I see it verse 4. And that is they took the opportunities they had for granted. They took the opportunities they had for granted. Look at verse, verse 4. Look at verse 4 of Romans chapter 2. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering? Now let's stop there and we'll finish the verse. Do you look at the goodness of God, how God has blessed you? How God has been good to you? How God has been patient? How God has been long-suffering? How God has been forbearing? That God's not immediately zapping you because you're in, uh, when you're doing things that are wrongful. What, what is your thought process about that? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You see, perhaps they're taking God's goodness as approval. You see, I'm doing the same thing as the Gentiles are doing. God doesn't approve of them, but God seems to be blessing me. Now, God's been patient with me, and that must mean God approves of me somehow. So perhaps they're taking God's goodness as approval. Look back at verse 4 again. God's goodness is intended as an opportunity to repent. So the longer that God lets you live, the longer God is blessing you, the longer that God is forbearing with you, the longer God is good to you, is just giving you the opportunity to make a change in your life. That's not God's approval of your life at all. So look again at verse 4. He said, do you despise the riches of his goodness and the forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You see, they took advantage and took the opportunities they had for granted and let them slip out of their hands. Here was another attitude they had toward the judgment that was wrong, and that is they did not fear, and they had indifference in their hearts. Look at verse 5. But in accordance to the hardness and your impenitent heart. Now let's stop there and talk about what that might be. They were not repenting according to verse 4. They're doing the same things as the Gentiles, but they're not making a change in their life. 
So at verse 5, he talks about the hardness of their heart. That is, they're, they're, there's a stubbornness in their mind, and they do not fear. In other words, they're not afraid of judgment. That's what I mean by not fearing. They don't fear God, but they're not afraid of judgment is our focal point. They don't seem to be bothered by judgment. They tell the Gentiles they face judgment, but I'm not afraid of judgment. I don't think it's going to bother me. I don't think God's going to touch me with reference to judgment. And so in according to your hardness and your impenitent heart, you refuse to make a change in your heart. What are you doing? You're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the longer you go on in your sin and the stubbornness and the indifference, what you're doing is just heaping up and treasuring up wrath that is going to be unleashed at the judgment day. More about that wrath here in just a moment. So they're not afraid at all concerning the judgment that may be coming. So what was their attitude toward it? The attitude that was wrong. They're thinking, you know what, our situation is different. We're going to escape. The opportunities that have been given to us are opportunities for God blessing us. They don't look at it as opportunities to repent, and they're not afraid of judgment, and they are indifferent. What I want you to learn from this is this principle, that our attitude toward judgment affects how we live. What do you think about the judgment day? What is your attitude toward the judgment? You see, your attitude toward the judgment affects how you live. How do I know? Well, the Jews were continuing in sin because of these attitudes. And so you live the way you live because of your attitude toward the judgment. Do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Are you indifferent and not afraid of the judgment of God? Is it that you think somehow God's goodness is God's approval towards you? Our attitude toward the judgment affects how we live. Here's the second thing from the context. And I know their attitude toward it. Let's talk about facts about the judgment as revealed per the text. What do we see in the text about the judgment? Let's start now backing up a little bit to verse 2. And let's talk about the facts that are right. Their attitude was wrong. Here are some facts that are right. What are some facts about the judgment? Well, let's talk about the who of the judgment. In other words, who's going to be involved in the judgment? Their attitude seemed to be the Gentiles are going to be judged. God's going to bring judgment and wrath upon the Gentiles. But we seem to be exempt from that. We're Abraham's seed, you see. And so they thought that was the thing. Well, let's go now to verse 3 and verse 5. Verse 3 and verse 5, we're going to learn that no one will escape the judgment of God, no matter who we are, Jew or Gentile, man or woman, rich or poor, whoever we may be. Look at verse 3. He said, Or do you think this, O man, who judged those practicing such things and doing the same, that you'll escape the judgment of God? That's a rhetorical question. The point being made, you're not going to escape the judgment of God. You're not going to escape it at all. Look at verse 5. But in accordance, these are the very ones who think they'll escape. But in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath at the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You're not going to escape. No one is going to escape. Drop down now to verse 11. Verse 11 says God is no respecter of persons. There is no partiality with God, depending on your translation. Notice he said it, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Now let's notice the context of this. And before we notice that, I want you to notice in Acts chapter 10, that same phrase is used coming from another angle. In Acts chapter 10, in preaching to the Gentiles, the preaching is about God offering salvation, and he said God is no respecter of persons. Look at Acts 10 and in verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and he said, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons or shows no partiality. Then what's the next statement he makes? Well, at verse 35, in every nation, he that fears God and works righteousness is accepted. In other words, in talking about God offering salvation, 
He said, God's not a respecter of person. God doesn't show partiality. He offers it to the Gentiles just like he does the Jews. So he's on the beginning end of salvation. Now, when they come to Romans 2, he's coming from a different angle with the same phrase. He said, God is not a respecter of persons. God shows no partiality. He had just mentioned in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 that God brings condemnation on some and he gives salvation to others. And in both cases, he mentions on the Jew first and also on the Greek. And so he's going to do it to the Gentiles and also the Jews. God is not a respecter of persons, meaning that God will judge one just like he does the other. And furthermore, notice at verse 6, the person who's going to be judged is we're going to be judged individually. Look at verse 6. Who will render to each one according to his deeds. That is, you're not going to be judged as a class. We're not going to be judged as a church or as a family or as a group, but we'll be judged individually. I'll give, in, I'll give an account for myself. You'll give an account for yourself. Your family cannot account for you. The church cannot account for you. We're going to give account individually. Each one will rent, be, uh, each one, uh, God will render to each one according to his deeds. Now let's talk about another fact. We know the who's going to be involved. All men are going to be there. All are going to be judged. But what is involved in the judgment? Let's answer the question of what. Let's talk about the standard that's going to be used. What standard will be used? Are we going to be judged by the opinions of men? Are we going to be judged by what we think? Is God going to ask, you know, what do you think about how you've done? You say, well, I think I've done a pretty good life. And so God ushers you in and says, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Or is there a standard, an objective standard that is to be followed? Well, let's see beginning at verse 2. Verse 2 says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. That is, it's fair, it's honorable, but it's according to the truth of the revelation of God. So God, the God's judgment is according to truth. Now drop down to verse 8. God's going to raise a question whether one submitted themselves to the truth. Look at verse 8. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. So God's going to judge one according to whether their life has conformed to the truth. John 17, 17, Jesus said, thy word is truth. So the word of God is the standard. Let's go a little bit further. Look at verse 12. It's the law under which one lives. Notice what he's saying. Now this is in the time, Romans 2 verse 12, is in the context of a time period when the Jews, he's talking about a time when the Jews were under their law and so were the Gentiles under their law. That is, the Jews were under the law of Moses. Read with me at verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. That is, the Gentiles. And as many as have sinned in the law, that is the Jews, will be judged by the law. That is, the Jews would have been judged by the law. The Gentiles would have been judged by the law that they were under. And likewise, we're under the law of Christ, James 1 and verse 25. So the standard is the, the law under which we live, that is, the law of Christ. Now let's go further to verse 16. We see another reference to the judgment, and he says, In that day God will judge the secrets of men according, uh, by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And so what is the standard that's going to be used? It's the revelation of God. So the standard is not what's popular. The standard is not going to be what men may think, but it has to do with the revelation of God. Now let's go begin at verse 6. And I want us to see the deeds. We're going to be judged by what we have done, by the deeds that are done in the body. Now, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, we often quote that one's going to give an account for the deeds done in their body. 
But Second Corinth, I mean, but Romans chapter two gets a little more specific than perhaps Second Corinthians five. Look at verse six, beginning. God will render to each one according to his deeds, according to his actions, not merely his intent, not merely what he had said he was going to do, not by the words that he said and that he promised, but by the actions that he performed by his deeds. But what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, look at verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul who does evil of the Jew first and also on the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good. Notice the deeds that are involved to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now drop down to verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. So it's not just our intention of how we plan to live, what I say I'm going to do or what I profess, but how do my deeds fit with that standard? One other point we want to make about the what, before we move to another question, is look at verse 16. And that is we're going to be judged by our secrets. Look at verse 16. In that day when God will judge the secrets of men. Now, if we let's take verse 16 out and erase that just for a moment in our mind and go back to the context of verse 6 where he talks about the deeds of man. And then here's the deeds that he's done. Verses six, verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. He might have done good. He might have done evil. We might get the impression that these are outward deeds that other people may know about and they may have seen when I have stolen something or maybe when I was worshiping God. But verse 16 says, we'll give an account even for the secrets of men according to my gospel. You see, that's that thing that you're doing that no one else knows about. That's that secret that you have that only you and your God know about. God will bring that into judgment. So what's going to be coming, what's going to come to judgment? I know the who, it's everyone. I know the what, there's the standard. The deeds that we've done and even our secrets will come to the judgment. Let's raise another question about the facts that are right. And that is the, <clears throat> the how of the judgment. So let's go back now to verse 2, then verse 5, then verse 11. We've seen all of these verses previously, but it's going to be righteous judgment. Let's go back now to verse 2. Verse 2 says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, not only according to the standard of truth, but according to what's right. In other words, what's fair. In other words, what he's saying in the context, if God said, okay, I'm going to condemn the Gentiles when they steal, but I'm not going to bring that judgment upon the Jews when they steal, that's not fair. That's not righteous. That's not equal. So he says it's going to be according to truth. Now look at verse 5. He calls this, and the very phrase we're using for our study this evening, the righteous judgment of God. That's how God's going to judge. And then the example of that's given at verse 11, that there is no partiality with God. If the Gentile obeys, God's going to save him. If the Gentile uh, disobeys God will condemn him. He'll do the very same thing with the Jew. He'll do that with you and with your family. You may have been the most diligent person all of your life and you turn away from God, God's going to judge you according to that. You may have been the most evil person all of your life and you turn to God, God will judge you according to that. It's going to be fair. It's going to be righteous. Now let's spend the rest of our time talking about the results of that. I know their attitude toward it. The facts that are right the attitude that was wrong, the facts that are right. Thirdly, let's talk about the results that will settle it. Let's talk about the results of this judgment. He tells the Jews in chapter 2, you're going to face the righteous judgment of God. 
And when you do, here's what's going to happen. Here is, or are, the results that settle it. Let's look at verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. It's always fascinating me that verse 7, 8, 9, and 10, that verse 7 and verse 10 talk about the same thing, and then verses 8 and 9 sandwiched between talk about the same thing. He talks about salvation at verse 7, and then he comes back to it at verse 10, and damnation between in verses 8 and 9. Let's talk about salvation. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Drop down to verse 10. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now when judgment comes and when the judgment day is here and God executes judgment, he's going to give some salvation according to verse 7 and verse 10. What do they receive? Notice what he says at verse 7. They will receive eternal life. Well, he said eternal life to those who by patient continuance and well-doing. So he's going to give life eternal, life that's everlasting, life that never ends, unlike life here on earth. But that's not all. Notice at verse 10, he mentions glory, honor, and peace. Glory obviously refers to the glories of heaven. The honor is the honor of the being crowned, receiving the crown of life, and a peace, an eternal peace, an eternal relationship with God. So here is what's received at the judgment. There is eternal life, or another way of wording that is they're, they're glorified, they're honored, and they have peace with God. Now I know what they receive, what is it that they did in order to receive that? Well, let's see what they did according to verse 7. There's patience continuance, notice the wording of verse 7, who by patient continuance in doing good. That is, they, they're doing good, but they don't grow weary in doing good, like Galatians 6. But they are patient in continuing to do good. They do good, they get discouraged, but they, they continue on. And they get a little more discouraged and they continue on. And they may get discouraged again, but they continue on. There's patience continuing to do good. They don't give up. They don't quit. They don't throw up their hands. Furthermore, look at verse 7. Not only do they patiently continue to do good, but they're seeking for glory, honor, and immortality. It's not like, well, if God gives that to me, that's okay. But they're going after that. They're seeking. They're running in that direction. They're seeking it out. Looking for that. What do I need to do? How can I obtain that? I'm going after honor. I'm going after mortality, immortality. I'm going after the glory. And then verse 10 mentions that they work what is good. Well, what's good is revealed in the scripture, so they're doing whatever God tells them to do. So here are those who receive salvation in the end of time. And that is, who is it, well, that does that? It's the one who patiently continues to do good. They seek for glory and honor and the work good. What they receive is eternal life. Now let's talk about damnation sandwiched in between verse 7 and verse 10. So let's look at verses 8 and 9. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul who does evil on the Jew first and also on the Greek. All right, what do we see? Here's what they receive. There's indignation and wrath. Look at verse, verse 8 again. But to those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. Now verse 8 seems to focus on God executing judgment. It's not so much saying, I think at verse 8, that you're receiving indignation and wrath, but you're going to receive the result of God's indignation and wrath. 
that God's wrath is stirred because of sin. And you receive it from God, that is, you're receiving the results of God's indignation and God's wrath you're going to receive. Now then verse 9 says, here's what you receive because of that. Tribulation and anguish. Tribulation and anguish both involve suffering, eternal suffering. Uh, a suffering that goes on and, and the torment that lasts forever and forever. Revelation 14 verses 10 and 11. So here is torment that is involved that lasts forever and forever. So what they receive? They receive indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. What did they do in order to receive that? Let's go back now to verse 8. They were self-seeking. What does that mean? They're serving self. They're looking to please themselves. They're not interested in pleasing God. They're interested in pleasing self. In other words, they do what they want to do. They serve their own lust, their own desires, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, etc. Furthermore, verse 8 says they do not obey the truth. Well, the reason is they're seeking self. They're seeking to serve themselves, and they're not obedient to the truth. They do not submit themselves to God. They've not suppressed their own will and yielded to the will of God. Now, furthermore, verse 8, they obey unrighteousness. Instead of obeying righteousness, God, God's commands, they're obeying unrighteousness. That is, they have submitted to the commands of Satan and doing whatever Satan would have them to do. Now, verse 9, it says they do evil, things that are contrary to God. So now I know what they did to receive the things that they have received. So what have we seen right here in verses 1 to 16? This is not the entire chapter, obviously. But it's a summary of two, verses 1 to 16 of the righteous judgment of God. There was the attitude that was wrong. There are the facts that are right. And thirdly, there is the results that settle the whole question about judgment. So our question tonight is, what is your attitude toward the judgment? As you look at Romans 2, do, do you see yourself there? Do you say, you know what, I think I'll escape the judgment of God because you see, I, am, I have been baptized. And my family's all Christians. And, and all of those reasons, I, I think I'm going to be okay. No matter what I may do. So what is your attitude toward the judgment? Do you know when that judgment's going to be? Do you know whether it's going to be soon or it's going to be a long way off? The biggest question is, are you going to be ready for that judgment? What's your attitude toward it? I know the attitude that was wrong. I know the facts that are right here in this context of who's going to face judgment, what they're going to face in judgment, how they're going to be judged, and I know the results of that judgment revealed right here in the text. Are you ready for that judgment? There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come this evening believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith? Be buried in the waters of baptism that you might obtain the remission of sins, that you might be ready to face the judgment of God. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?